0: KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan. We'll be back in just a minute. Good evening. Hi, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And it's about eight minutes after 11 p.m. on the 4th of September. Nice to be with you guys tonight, and we started things off there with a little bit of music from our friends from Italy, the Wimshurst Machine. That song is called Indian Shores, and we'll play a lot of music tonight from the Wimshurst Machine. I got a bunch of new stuff that uh, Augusto... Shared with me over the last month or so, so we'll play some of that uh, throughout the program tonight and meanwhile, let me do my uh, my honors first uh, thanks to Debbie always every week Debbie Johnson Free Range radio theater and uh, this great series from Isaac Asimov that she's been running for the last few weeks, and I think it's going for a couple more at least. Uh, at any rate, check her out on uh, Monday nights, always an hour before Radio Orbit, Free Range Radio Theater. And I think you can find them on the web as well at something.com. something, something. Just use the search engine. That's usually the best way. Uh, at any rate, before that we had Kelvin and Jason, as always, doing jazz plus blues equals soul. Tech radio before that. And early in the evening... Uh, in the afternoon, I guess I should say, Jeff Wheeler with Uncommon Light from 3 until 5 p.m., playing great music every Monday. So, all right, uh as always, KOPN on Mondays. Great to be here, and I'm glad you guys are coming along for the ride tonight, okay? All right, last week, uh, another wonderful contribution from John Major Jenkins. Big thanks to John and everyone else who participated. Also, thanks to Jeff Stray. Uh, I'm not sure if everyone was aware, but I did a live webcast yesterday afternoon with Jeff Stray live from his home south of London and we talked for 2 hours and I'll have that conversation up on the web in the archives um, either tonight or tomorrow sometime but anyway Jeff Stray wonderful information coming from him and his website of course is uh, diagnosis2012.co.uk so um what else do we have to say here as we get things going Uh, Tonight, we're going to sort of keep on the same track and talk with Jay Widener, our friend and uh, the wonderful producer of a new and amazing video documentary. It's called 2012, The Odyssey. I've spoken about it a few times on the air over the last couple months, and I had the uh, pleasure to watch the final cut this afternoon, and it's wonderful, and uh, I look really forward to talking with Jay about it tonight. Anyway, of course, Jay is also the author of... A Monument to the End of Time, that he wrote back in 97 or 98 with Vincent Bridges. And that was the book that um, got my attention. And, of course, it uh, turns out that Jay was also friends with Terrence. And uh, the the film 2012, The Odyssey, is actually dedicated to Terrence McKenna. It's a wonderful uh, thing, and the way they finish the film off, and the way they begin it, actually. So, anyway, we'll talk about that with Jay Widener in about 40 minutes or so, 50 minutes or so. And I hope everybody sticks around. He's great, and he's been on the program before. If you've missed it, you can always check it out on the web at h a g a n H-A-G-A-N.com. Just sneak over there and go to the archives, and you can find any of the old conversations that we've had with Jay or John Major Jenkins or anybody else who's been on the program over the last couple of years. All right? Okay, as I said, uh, tonight, Jay Widener, all, right? all things 2012. We'll talk about the new video. Uh, before that, we've got a little something special planned. My friend Aaron Hunsley is here with me in the studio, and he's uh, the producer for and, and actually performing in the currently running production of Macbeth that's playing here at the Maplewood Barn Theater, and we're going to chat a bit uh, with Aaron, of course, about the curse of Macbeth, what else, and we'll talk about the play that's being performed right here in town for the next few weeks, and I don't know, we'll probably skip space weather tonight, maybe do some news if we have the time, and uh, take some questions from the chat room. Maybe, I don't know, we'll see. But anyway, as I said, we'll have some appropriate and lovely music from our friends the Wimshurst Machine throughout the evening. Beautiful, independent music from Italy. And uh, I think we'll play another song here, and then we'll come back and we'll talk with Aaron and find out a little bit about the history of this play, Macbeth, and this curse that is somehow associated with it. Possibly, possibly not. Interesting story, though. And then we'll talk with Jay in just a little while, okay? Okay, back in a few. It's Mike. you listen to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. This is a song that is called Rise from the Ashes, all right? We'll be back in just a minute with Aaron Hunsley. And one more time, on the web, KOPN.org or MikeHagan.com. One more from the Wimshurst machine there, and that was actually called Mystic Science. I thought I was going to play uh, Rise from the Ashes, but uh, you heard Mystic Science. Maybe we'll play Rise from the Ashes a little bit later in the show. Anyway, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And it's good to be with you here on the 4th of September my guest in the studio right now with me is Aaron Hunsley. Aaron is uh, an actor and a local active person in the theater community uh, and um, here at KOPN as well. As a matter of fact, he gets involved with Free Range Radio Theater quite a bit. But at any rate, uh, Aaron is with me and he is uh, the producer of the production of Macbeth that's being shown for us right now at the Maplewood Barn Theater. And Aaron uh, and I decided that we would just, Take a few minutes and talk about the play, and uh, it's a great thing that you guys are
1: doing. So, you anyway. for inviting me. I'm honored to be here.
0: All right, so uh, the
1: play, uh, Macbeth, it's it's uh, going on right now. Or when, did it begin last weekend? Is that what it was? Yeah, Yes, it, for the next two weekends, um, our theater is in Nifong Park. Maplewood Barn Theater has been performing plays for the last 35 years. Uh, this is our final show of the season um so it's going to be running through the 17th it's friday saturday and sunday um house opens at seven show starts at eight shows Um, at
0: eight okay
1: and it's uh so three nights outdoor theater okay so it's 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 bring a blanket bring a lawn chair right and Um, uh i believe are eight dollars for adults six dollars for students and senior citizens and kids are welcome Yes. Um, Although this is not necessarily an appropriate show for some children, there are some violent there are some violent scenes. Ah, yes, yes. There's a murderer, as a matter of fact, that
0: I know that's in the play. Mm -hmm. But we won't talk about him right now. It's too it's too big a deal. I don't want to peek too early. (laughs) <laughs> anyway all right so so the, the big question for me was the curse of macbeth i've seen the play and i've i've read it but i never i never really even realized that there was a curse that was supposed to be associated with the play you it's mentioned it's something
1: it. it's one of those secrets that's passed between actors it's almost anyone who does theater has heard of the macbeth curse right and you can't even say the word or something i had right? i had heard of the <laughs> curse um well i'm not particularly superstitious about it myself right. i i have uh um, just full disclosure, I have I have a few theater superstitions that I follow. Um, you are never supposed to say good luck before a show starts. You always say break a leg break because a leg, right. because if you say good luck, then you're just uh, tempting the evil spirits to do you harm. <laughs> However, there really is a practical value of some of these traditions in that, and it's it's tradition, um, and that is before a show starts. Um, when you go out on stage you're going to be trusting these people who you work with, these friends of yours, um, to support each other and make sure that um that 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 they look good mm-hmm. and sound good. Right, right. And um if you say break a leg right before you go on stage, you know that they're thinking about you and that they're thinking about the job they're about to do. I think I think other professions, uh maybe maybe carpenters and whatever, <laughs> should tell each other to break a leg before they go out and uh, and do their thing. Although uh dancers, um, it's a little bit of a variant is because they don't want to uh break a leg. Yeah, um, I don't know if I want to tell a dancer to Yeah, they they tell each other married. Um, which means something else in French. I was going to say I mean, it had to be French. Which the line. FCC won't let me. Uh-huh, Aha, I think again. I remember now what <laughs> it is. Okay. <laughs> but the Macbeth curse. Yeah. I um. It was not something that I've ever taken seriously, but I was surprised when we announced that this was what we were going to do in our season. How many? Just how many talented people said said that they really didn't want to be part of of any production of Macbeth because really? the curse. How the curse exactly works depends on who you ask, but um, the play itself is supposedly cursed in that if you do a a production of Macbeth, then things are bound to go wrong during the production. Uh, There's a whole history of uh, people have, have sat down and figured out all of these productions of Macbeth in which terrible things have happened and right. some of the stories are, are pretty entertaining. But it's also unlucky, even if you're not doing a production of Macbeth, <laughs> it, is, it is unlucky to even mention the name. However, exactly when you're allowed to mention the name and when you're not depends on who you ask. For some people, they will not say Macbeth under any circumstances. Right. Other people... Only if it's in the the theater. Um, And you're not, if it's in the theater and you're not doing the play. So that's, that's probably the least inconvenient superstition is because, is because if you're doing uh, cat on a hot tin roof, you're not supposed to say Macbeth. But if you're doing Macbeth, you have to say Macbeth. So it's (laughs) alright. And you can say it as much as you want outside the theater, right. according to some people.
0: And so it turns out that a lot of people actually refer to it as the Scottish play, right? There
1: are many <laughs> euphemisms. Uh-huh. It is referred to as the Scottish play, the Scottish tragedy, <laughs> the Scottish business.
2: My favorite is, <laughs> That's is
1: my favorite is the comedy of gloms, which, uh, which uh, Macbeth is is the saint of gloms at the beginning of the play. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, it's the comedy mm-hmm. of gloms, um, the unmentionable or just that play why and if you refer to the, the characters terrible. the characters even um will be referred to as macbeth would be referred to especially in britain as macers <laughs> he's not macbeth and lady macers his wife
3: <laughs>
1: all right now so what i read and correct me if i'm wrong but i read okay the the, the mm-hmm. play the play was written william shakespeare obviously in the 1600s or mm-hmm. early 1600s. Uh, yes, in fact, it was first performed in 1606. So our production is the 400th anniversary. Wow, production. that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And 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 it was performed originally for King James. Yes, right. And uh, William Shakespeare played Lady Macbeth. Huh. Because the boy who was supposed to play Lady Macbeth uh, suddenly took ill and died. And that's um, possibly huh. where the uh, story, of course, being the early 17th century, that was uh, that was pretty common. Huh. Um, however, uh, that's, uh, that's how the story goes.
0: Well, there was, um, I read something that, th- there's a part in the play where there's a bunch of witches dancing around a cauldron. And, and perhaps some of the real sorcerers of the day didn't like their rituals being shown about in public or something how the the story
1: works is that william shakespeare was a stickler for accuracy and he went out and reproduced an actual 17th century black magic ritual and that the actual practitioners were upset about that happening and and laid a curse Uh on the macbeth play
0: Uh uh-huh all right so 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 maybe that's the origin of the
1: actual curse itself I who knows. Yeah, care not to speculate, but mm-hmm. um I don't I don't know I don't think that anyone knows for certain how the story got started that Macbeth was cursed, but as the story goes that's uh that that, that it was cursed right from the very first performance.
0: What are some of the other things that have happened over the years? Okay, some
1: of the more entertaining. Um, probably the one that really got the idea of a curse going was a performance in Amsterdam in 1672 um, when the person playing Macbeth when he killed Duncan, which is ordinarily a scene which occurs off stage, but in some productions they actually kill Duncan on stage, and they had staged it so that the actor playing Macbeth would kill Duncan on stage. And apparently this actor whose name I don't think survives um, according to the story um, decided uh, to actually murder the guy playing Macbeth and or playing Duncan rather, and uh, and actually stabbed him while uh, while they were on stage, committed the murder right uh, in broad daylight. The uh, the one that looked like it had the most body count to me was actually a 1942 <laughs> production, which was directed um, by. Uh, Sir John Gielgud who also played John he also played he, he produced and directed I believe and also played Macbeth in uh, this particular production and three of the performers died in accidents and two of the the costume designer and the set t- designer committed suicide on the stage not during a performance <laughs> but uh, but uh, in in the middle of all of the uh, of uh, the production design wow you know John Gilgood, he,
0: he was also Arthur's Butler in the in the movie Arthur. You remember that with with. Uh, D- D- you know D- I've D- seen
1: Gilgood in a lot of oh a lot of strange God. movies, but I don't yeah, remember I've that seen. one in particular. It's one yeah. of the greatest things I've ever seen.
0: <laughs> anyway, all right. So uh, does it happen with
1: other plays? Or, I mean, or, or, or? I'm sure it does, and yeah. that's. I I think I mean my my own personal uh, belief is that Macbeth has performed many times. There are a lot of combat scenes in Macbeth, which means that it's probably a little more dangerous mm. than some plays. Um, doing doing any kind of uh, stage combat um, can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing because the actors are so, there's so much adrenaline going, it's, it's almost like you're in a real fight because mm. you're so into your character, you're so, um, you're so uh, excited about what you're doing, and sometimes that's, that's really a formula for making mistakes. And, and many of these things that happened as I was going through uh, doing research, looking on the Internet at all of the uh, different uh, accidents that have happened in Macbeth, often it's uh, faulty, faulty stage weapons, is that uh, a, a weapon will break in the middle of a combat and hit somebody in the audience, Um, things like that will happen also when I was doing the research there were a lot of stories about well so and so lost his voice and so and so got mugged and I was thinking um, if you do enough productions of something you're going to have a lot of uh, I I can think I've done done probably this is close to my 50th community theater show and I can think and this is the first time I've ever done Macbeth and I can think of a lot of accidents and injuries and, and things that have happened in a lot of other plays um, actually, one of the uh, antidotes to the curse um, involves the uh, the play um, The um, uh, Merchant of Venice, which has the opposite reputation. That's considered a very lucky play, but well, I don't think there are any combats in The Merchant of Venice, which may have something to do with it. Macbeth's <laughs> like a pretty short play, isn't it? Isn't a- it's a very short play, and in fact, it was probably originally very much longer. Hmm. Um, the only authoritative version that we have dates from 1623 so much later than the, than it was actually performed mm-hmm. and there are lots of signs that other people added things to it like many scholars believe that uh, Hecate who is a character who ap- appears in two or three scenes um, that that character was added by a later author, and probably because it's so short, the version that we have is based on um, based on a, a separate script that was put together for a production in which there was a lot of a, a lot of cuts had been made. Hmm. Antidotes. There's another one. Right? Yeah, there, others um, that have, there you are have spinning
0: around and yeah. spitting over your shoulder and swearing.
1: All kinds of stuff? Yeah, in fact the first time that I'd ever seen any of that is there's a wonderful episode of the British comedy Black Adder where the running That's gag really is that every time every time someone says Macbeth this uh, <laughs> pair of actors has to go through this convoluted and painful ritual and uh-huh. of course Blackadder um the main character being a, a very dastardly fellow um deliberately says Macbeth a lot uh-huh. so that uh, so that they have to injure themselves trying to trying to get rid of the curse. Right. But um the the complex ritual that is that is most widely accepted is that if you say Macbeth, you're supposed to leave the room, turn around clockwise three times, <laughs> spit on the ground, knock on the door, and then ask permission to re-enter the room. Hmm. But there are other things that you can do. Um, I'm going to list that I got off the internet. Of, uh, <laughs> of different ways that you can get rid of the Macbeth uh, curse. But uh, quoting from other Shakespearean plays other than Macbeth, um, especially if it's if it's an appropriate uh, quote. Like, quoting from Hamlet is considered particularly efficacious. Um, Angels and ministers of grace defend us is a nice quote from Hamlet that you can use mm. in order to get rid of the curse. Or, um, or quotes from Merchant of Venice, um, like when Lorenzo um, tells the departing Portia, Fair thoughts and happy hours attend to you. Ah, that's uh, nice, that's, actually. Uh, that's the way that you get rid of the curse, if you happen to accidentally say the M word in, uh, in the theater.
0: The M word. Yeah. That's what I can get away with on the air, at least, though.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, all right, so at the Maplewood, who else is in the play over there? And what's your part? What do you play?
1: Wow, we got uh, Charlie Wilkerson um, playing Mackers and... Uh, and um, we've got a cast of about two dozen people. Um, how I many people
0: are in the play? There are that many characters? Yeah,
1: there are. Wow. Well, there are more than that many characters. That's how many people we have. Um, we have on stage at one time or another.
0: So. No way! Cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know that um, there's a young guy
0: here that helps out at the station. Matt, uh, who's Matt all excited about
1: second murderer.
0: That's right. He's mm-hmm. a, he,
1: he, he, he's
0: one of the bad dudes. Right. Who's he kill?
1: Um, well, he uh, helps kill Banquo. I hope I don't like reveal too much of the plot. There, oh, but yeah, all right. Uh, but I think I think uh, I think Macbeth's been around long enough that uh, that I'm not letting any kind of plot cat out of <laughs> the bag for that. But uh, all right.
0: Well, the Goddess be with you. Don't kill anyone. All right, Matt. Just fake it. <laughs> all right. Don't pay attention to this. I don't want to see any curse happening at the Maplewood Barn.
1: We've got some nice combat scenes in yeah. that uh, in that show, though. It's uh, some nice action.
0: Well, I'm hoping that I get a chance to get down there and see it. um, The way that it's being actually produced, for example, the music that's being played uh, with it. Yeah, it's a
1: non-traditional... Production in that, and, and and many times people who who stage Shakespeare rather than going with the tights and um, the rapiers uh, and doing it in an Elizabethan, an Elizabethan style, or or doing it, um, the actual play takes place in late 10th, early 11th century. So, um, I mean, Macbeth was a, was an historical character, um, and many of the other characters in the play were real people. Um, you could also choose to set it in that uh time period that dark ages with chainmail and broadswords and all that mm-hmm. the claymores and 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 rather than do any of that what our particular production um involves is uh is it's it doesn't take place in any particular time and place specifically but the style is very much Argentina in the 30s those tango music, yeah, there's tango music. um uh, flappers um trench coats um, and, uh, the fights are, are all knife fights.
0: Wow. All right. Well, everybody, that's, uh, going on one more time. Uh, Aaron, it's, uh, uh, give us the dates and the times again. Yeah,
1: it's, uh, this weekend and next weekend. So the final, final performance date is the 17th. It's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, house opens at seven, show starts at eight. Um, that's Nifong Park, which is, um, just off of Nifong Boulevard, um, and uh, adjacent to sixty three 63 63 South yeah. of town.
0: All right. And is there a, is there a website address or anything like that? Yes,
1: uh, MaplewoodBarn dot com.
0: MaplewoodBarn dot com. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, look, awesome. Thanks. Anything you, you want to finish up with? Anything? anything? Uh, that's that's love to see people there. Bring a lawn chair. Bring uh, bring a blanket. It's Bottle of wine. a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. All right. All right. Great. I recommend well, it.
0: Cool. Excellent. I can't wait. I hope I can make it down to the seat. Yeah. Okay.
1: Fantastic.
0: All right, Aaron. Take care of yourself. Huh? Thanks. All right, everybody, that's Aaron Hunsley, and as he has been talking about, we got Macbeth, an interesting production of Macbeth being done at the Maplewood Barn Theater uh, for the next couple of weekends, and I hope everybody has a chance to get down there and check it out. It'll be great. That's that. All right, so hey, look, it's Mike. It is about 35 after the hour of 11 p.m. on the 4th of September, and we'll be back in just a moment. Get on with the program, okay? You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN.org on the web, and also MikeHagan.com. It's Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN. We'll be back in just a minute. it's Mike Hagan, you're listening to Radio Orbit, it's KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. That was Gardens of Babylon, another piece of music there from the Wimshurst Machine. And if you like this stuff, you can hop on the web and go over to www.mikehagan.com and find my music archives and you can download some songs from the Wimshurst Machine and you can go over to their own website and find out more about the band if you're interested in them bunch of really talented people though that participate in that project in the southern part of italy all right so it is about 11 42 and i'm going to do a quick uh, catch up here and then i'll put on another piece of music get jay on the phone we'll finish things up at the top of the hour do a little bit of news maybe i will do space weather if we get an opportunity and then we'll come back at the top of the hour at uh, midnight and talk with jay widener for the next couple hours okay So, everybody, thank you for the nice emails that I've gotten over the last week or so. And hello to everybody who's listening over the web, whether you're listening live or otherwise. We are streaming right now and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio at www.cosmicwavesradio.com. And thanks to everybody over there, all the guys and girls that make it happen for us every week live on the net. And, of course, uh, thanks also in order To Larry, the web wizard, as always, doing great stuff, and to all the other people out there who have been helping out with the website, and I appreciate everybody getting involved in everything that you do to help me and to um, promote the the project here. All right, everybody else, uh, sending art and music, awesome, I love it. Send more, 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 and as you're hearing tonight, some cool new tunes from the Wimshurst machine. So thanks again to Larry for putting all that stuff together on the web, the music archives, along with the program archives, along with the news archives and the forum and all this stuff is uh, really coming along, and I'd like to know what people think about it, so if you have a moment, check it out, hop on the web, go to com and send me an email or a note or post something over on the forum and just let us know what you think. You'll have access to everything we're doing if you just uh, go over there to the website, all right? Okay, one other thing, uh, my friends Jeff and William from Yachai, uh, wonderful a couple of musicians uh, have agreed to make their entire CD, Sweet Mother Mercy, available for download. All you got to do is go over to the site and uh, sneak over to the music archives and you can uh, get a download of that great CD, Sweet Mother Mercy, from the guys in Yachai. They have a new project as well that uh, we're really looking forward to, and I'll tell you more about that when they tell me more about it, okay? All right, so anyway, one more time, take a peek on the web, let us know what you think, okay? Also, a quick thank you to Paul uh, from 3Site Network. Uh, he is providing a backup forum for us to gather and communicate if anything ever uh, happens serious over at our site. And it's a great gesture, and I thank him for his generosity. And it's also an opportunity for us to get to know some other people over there. So we've got a link up now on the website as well over to Paul's site. And it just says uh, backup forum, I think, or backup board. Okay, you can bookmark that, and if you ever have a problem over at our site, you can sneak over there and see if there's any information about what's going on, okay? All right, the email address, as always, OrbitRadio at AOL.com, and the website, www.MikeHagan.com, and, of course, KOPN at KOPN.org on the web. And uh, let's see. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to take a break here. I'll get Jay on the phone and play another piece of music. Then I'll come back, talk a little bit about some upcoming guests and uh, we'll see how much time we have left, and get Jay Widener with us at the top of the hour, okay? All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. I'll be back in just a few minutes. We'll hear one more here from the Wimshurst Machine. Let's see, what do we want to hear? I wanted to play Rise from the Ashes before. I'll play it now. All right, it's Mike. Listen to Radio Orbit, and I'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Rise from the Ashes, the Wimshurst Machine, independent music from Italy. Check it out. Hi, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, that was a song called Rise from the Ashes, The Whimshurst Machine. All right, it's Mike, and let's see, we got about 10 minutes before midnight here on the 4th of September. Jay Widener coming up in just a few minutes, and let me tell you quickly about what's happening over the next few weeks, okay? First of all, thanks to Aaron Hunsley for being on the air just a few minutes ago and telling us about the Macbeth production that's happening here in town. Wonderful stuff, and I hope people can participate in that. All right, as I said tonight, uh, in just a few minutes, Jay Widener. If you want to get a leg up, hop on the web, www.mikehagan.com. From there, you can click right on over to Jay's website. You can also listen to the program live right now on the web, streaming via cosmicwavesradio.com. And there's a live chat room that is open and active right now. Lots of people over there that are chatting it up and waiting to hear Jay. Hello to everybody there. I appreciate everybody listening in. Okay?
1: All right, what
0: else? Um, Next week, the 11th of September, Richard K. Moore, Escaping the Matrix. Uh, Wonderful stuff. Cyberjournal.org on the web if you're interested in Richard. He's been on the program a couple times before. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've gotten to know Richard and his material much better than I have in previous conversations, and I'm hoping that it'll be one that's uh, worthwhile to listen to. So that's on September 11th, the five-year anniversary of the events in New York City. I hope you can listen in. Richard's amazing. All right. Okay, on the 18th of September, Kevin and Matthew Taylor, The Land of No Horizon, will talk about Hollow Earth Theories. And let's see, Dr. Alan Goldstein, Nanobiotechnology, on October 2nd. have got a couple weeks in between there where I'm open right now. I'm sure something will come up or I'll fill in with something. If not, we'll do an open line show and catch up on the news like we do once in a while. Regardless, good stuff coming up. Dale Pendell, haven't nailed down a date with him. I'm trying to get a program lined up with Dr. Roland Griffiths. Dr. Griffiths is, of course, an associate of Dennis McKenna's and was the doctor at Johns Hopkins who ran the study that was released in uh, July Uh, with regard to psilocybin and the wonderful and amazing benefits of that particular naturally occurring compound. Anyway, so that'd be great if we can get Roland Griffiths on the air, and uh, I'm doing my best, okay? Uh, Jim Beard, a Native American elder and a grandfather of mine in the Lakota tradition that I carry. And I love Jim, and I can't wait to have him on the air. That'll be in December probably, but I'm really looking forward to it whenever we can have Jim Beard on the air with us. Okay? Uh, G. Edward Griffin, trying to get things lined up with Ed to come back on the program, talk about the Federal Reserve a little bit. And I don't know what else, but just keep your ears tuned and, and pay attention. All right? All right, it's Mike, and you listen to Radio Orbit. We've got about seven minutes to the top of the hour here, so I'll do a quick little look at space weather, and uh, then we'll play another song, and then we'll come back with Jay at the top of the hour, okay? Uh, I mentioned last week that this particular probe called Smart One. I'm not sure how smart it is. It's a spacecraft that uh, was a moon orbiter. It was a mission to uh, study the moon. Anyway, it just smashed into the moon uh, yesterday at about 5 a.m. in uh, Greenwich time, I guess. So about midnight here. And anyway, there was a flash, and uh, people looking with their backyard telescopes might have seen something. But people using bigger telescopes saw quite an explosion on the moon as... uh, this European Space Agency probe, Smart One, was crashed uh, into the moon yesterday morning. Anyway, and I'm, I'm not sure what that accomplished, but they like to blow stuff up, you know. That's just an extension of that, <laughs> I guess. All right, what else? Uh, bright auroras, actually. If you were in Manitoba or anywhere north of, I don't know, maybe the Wisconsin line, you might have had a great view of Aurora Borealis last night. There was a... Uh, solar wind stream that picked up over the last couple of days and has made for just some absolutely surreal imagery coming from uh, from the north. And if you go over to spaceweather.com and go over to the Aurora Gallery, my gosh, um, uh, the September Aurora Gallery, it's only three days old, but it's really amazing and beautiful stuff that's happening in the sky up there. Let's see, what else is happening? I think, uh, let's see, September 3rd, that's today. Uh, or yesterday, I guess, the, f- the 30th anniversary of the Viking 2 landing, Mars landing, 30 years ago. No problemo, man. They landed a probe on Mars, took some pictures, some amazing pictures, by the way. You go over to Kent Stedman's site. Go over to cyberspaceorbit.com and go snooping around for Viking material. It'll blow you away. And look at the Mariner material. There was a, that was previous, uh, a prior mission to the Viking missions. The Mariner photography is absolutely stunning. And Kent did an amazing job a few years ago of fleshing all that stuff out because you have to take the the digital original imagery and then uh, it's all compressed and this and that and you have to do a bunch of you know, artistic magic to expand it and blah, 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 to make it, you know, where people can see it. So they made all this stuff available years ago, but they put it in a form that very few people understood even how the frick to look at it, you know. But anyway, Bardo figured it out, trust me. And if you go over, again, to cyberspaceorbit.com and just look around for the Viking images or the Mariner images, and you'll see you'll see why why they finally, last year, You know, began talking about water on Mars and all this stuff, and and I'm not talking about in the past tense. I firmly believe there's water, liquid water on Mars now, and I mean, if you go to Kent's site, you can see it with your own eyes uh, in many in many of those photographs. It's uh, it's amazing. Anyway, okay, uh, what else? Lots of comets flying by, asteroids flying by, as always. Don't forget it. We live in a pinball machine. All right, uh, let's see. Cassini doing a flyby. On September 7th, that, of course, is uh, a probe that's flying around Saturn's moon Titan and uh, looking at the whole Saturn system, actually, and has been for quite some time. And, oh boy, I don't know, lots of stuff happening, as always. We'll talk more about it next week. We're getting close to the top here. So I'm going to play a quick tune here by the Wimshurst Machine. We will come back in just a couple of minutes with, uh, with Jay Widener and it's going to be a wonderful program, so stick around on the web one more time at Mike H-A-G-A-N MikeHagan.com, and you can find out information about Jay at Jay Widener, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. Check out this piece of music here, and we'll come back and do it up in just a minute. This is a song called The Bayside Waltz. That's it. You got it. The Wimshurst Machine. Bayside Waltz. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. It's just a couple of ticks after midnight on September the 4th. Uh, September the 5th now. And I'm very pleased, as I always am when I get to talk to Jay Widener, uh, to have him on the air. Jay is an author. He's a filmmaker. He's an hermetic scholar. He caught my attention in 1998 with a book that was uh, the first at least the first edition was called A Monument to the End of Time and uh, the current edition of that I believe is called The Mysteries of the Great Cross at Henday Alchemy and the End of Time but amazing work that uh, has to do with a gentleman named Falconelli at any rate Jay has done amazing work over many years, and the synchronicities between he and I have accumulated since I first read that book. And without any further delay, we'll bring him right on the air. He's got a wonderful new video we're going to talk about, and uh, we're going to begin right now. So Jay Widener, thanks again for being on Radio Orbit, as always.
4: Hey, it's my pleasure, Mike. How are you, man? I'm great.
0: Good. Uh, As always, Jay coming to us from Seattle, a little bit, well, just outside of Seattle, I guess. And uh, we talked to Jay a, a couple of weeks ago. He called in and said hi back in the in the middle of August. But since then, uh, like I say all the time, two weeks is a lot of time now these days.
2: True. Sure.
0: And lots of things happen. I guess, uh, first of all, just uh, say hello, tell everyone what's uh, maybe going on in your world. Uh, for the people who aren't familiar with Jay, you're just going to have to catch up, I guess.
4: Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, we Of course, as, as you said, we have a new film being released, a feature film called 2012 the Odyssey with Jose Arguez and Alberto Villoto and Greg Braden and Jeff Stray and John Major Jenkins mm. and I don't know, all sorts of people. The Incan elders, I managed to get Terrence McKenna in. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> uh, so that's coming out and we'll be playing across the nation in November. I'm hoping that uh, you'll be able to get us a place in uh, in in your area, Mike, to uh, show the film.
0: Yeah, there's 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 actually a wonderful little theater here that uh, is called the Ragtag, as a matter of fact, and it's a great uh, independent theater here in Columbia. And I'd love to be able to get a screening of of 2012: uh, The Odyssey there.
4: Yeah, and uh, well, uh, what's, it's kind of interesting because in the last <clears throat> in the last uh, two or three weeks, uh, uh, again, is piling up here. Huh. Um, I have put together an entire, kind of a, a, almost a vanguard way of distributing films. I, I was going down to Hollywood to distribute this film, and uh, I managed to pick up some books about film distribution by lawyers you know, on Amazon. Right. and I read them and um, pretty much got terrified by <laughs> the entire industry and how they screw everybody. <laughs> and I decided that maybe I didn't want to go through those networks anymore and so I've kind of created a new vanguard way of distributing films and uh, so I'm actually distributing the film and uh, I've got literally hundreds and hundreds of cities across the country already committed to putting the film out and showing it in their venues and in their theaters and um, and we're keeping all the money, not Sacred Mysteries, but between the people who are showing it and Sacred Mysteries. Or we're just splitting it 50-50. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like screw Hollywood. Yeah. And um, it's its actually some of the most exciting work I've ever done because while it's not artistic or research, it's a—it's it's in a way kind of almost a revolutionary business model, which is could in the end, maybe even undercut. Hollywood and allow a more free access to um to cinema and uh so oh, we'll see where it goes but right now it's it's uh the response has been incredible and uh and so I've been busier than hell just building this kind of new network of of new venues and new theater owners and and things and uh so it's been pretty amazing experience all the way around it went straight from making the film to uh distributing it and uh, so I had to change hats and go from artist to businessman, (laughs) and uh, that's not always an easy thing to do but it's been great and uh, the response to the film so far has been great Ellen Burstyn the actress said it was one of the most profound films she's ever seen Mm -hmm. and and you can see the film the trailer by the way it's on the website uh, 2012 theodyssey.com
2: that's
0: right about a
4: three and a half minute trailer up there right now which uh, I just finished and got up
0: okay good and and, uh, I think we have a link up uh, for everybody on on my front page as well if you just uh, uh, scroll down just a hair there you'll see uh, an image of the DVD cover actually and it says uh, uh, the Odyssey website and you can just uh, click on that and then you go watch that trailer and Jay hats off to to both you and to Sharon Sharon Rose who did a wonderful job in both uh, acting and, and, and performing in the And and of course, uh, in producing it as well.
4: Yeah, she did a great job. She uh, she was instrumental. She's she's sort of like the Greek chorus, I guess, in the film, recapping information that may be a bit too esoteric for I don't know Joe Sixpack. I don't think your audience would find it esoteric, but you know, for the regular guy, he may it might be over their heads. So Sharon kind of comes in and recaps a lot of the stuff and re-explains it so that they get it. And she does it in a way that isn't redundant. I think
0: mm-hmm. you
4: know it's it's worthwhile to have her there doing that. And so, I think it really helped the film. I really do. Yeah,
0: and you know the, this phenomenon that you're experiencing with with uh, the theaters and the response that you seem to be getting. I think certainly it's it's a great idea. I think what you're doing, but I also think it's the time is right too for this sort of a film. A lot of people are looking for. For something different, or and 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 this is a real eye catcher. It's, it's a fantastic film, and I think when people see it, they love to show it to other people.
4: Yeah, we showed it in my little small town that I live. Uh, let's see, a couple of weeks ago, and um, two thousand people in my town, <laughs> and we had a hundred a hundred seat theater, and we turned away people. Everyone stayed all the way till the very end. Not one person left the showing, and then it got a standing ovation. Wow! So. That was get gratifying, and um, again, you know it's just you're right I think I think it, the film it, it, the film may one day get picked up by Hollywood, but if it does, it's going to be under you know my dictates mm-hmm. and, and our dictates and not their dictates, and I think that's the difference, and it's like you know, Hollywood needs us more than we need Hollywood, and as long as Hollywood is thinking that we don't need them. Then they'll play by our rules, rather than vice versa. Right. And that's what I'm interested in right now. I'm really interested in creating revolutionary new models of getting information out and not letting the powers that uh, you know have been busting us down for the last 100, 200 years, uh, not letting them uh, dictate anymore what we're doing. And I think that's really what's going on all around. Shows like yours, and and the breakdown of the music industry, and the breakdown of the film industry and the fact that nobody's watching television news anymore—they're all getting their news off the web from you know places like Rents.com or whatever—and I think, or, or Orbit, um, you know, and it's like we're, we're doing it. We're actually doing it. We're actually recreating a whole entire world medium of information. And we're doing it ourselves. It's completely decentralized. <laughs> I don't think anybody cares about the money, which just drives the old boy network crazy.
3: <laughs> right. And
4: you know, it's, like, yeah. <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's mm-hmm. a really incredible time to like be glancing around and looking at what's happening and seeing, you know, what kind of revolutionary ideas are really coming forth. I was reading an article in the New York Times Sunday Edition, and there's a Russian physicist who's breaking all sorts of new ground in physics and instead of getting grants and instead of publishing books, he's just writing the papers and throwing them up on the web. (laughs) And everybody goes, why are you doing this? You you can't do this. And he goes, oh yeah, I can. I'm doing it. What do you mean I can't do it? And and, you know, he's throwing the whole physics world into, uh, you know, complete uh, you know, <laughs> chaos because you're just not supposed to do this. I love it. Yeah. And and so, uh, really, you know, it's really really an amazing time. And uh, we just may uh, overthrow this thing yet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you that the, the, um, uh,
0: the, the film makes it quite clear that there are a whole lot of uh, signs coming from lots of different perspectives that say that something is certainly happening. You know, I've got to tell you that... Uh, Toward the beginning of the film, I had the, the most amazing déjà vu. Uh, Sharon is in the car, and she's just taken off on her trek to go. Well, I won't give it away, but she's she's off exploring, trying to find find out what's going on, right? Yep. And um, she's listening to Terrence on the on on the stereo in her car. And I can't tell you how many times I've done that, you know, over over the years. Uh, you know, I've had I don't know this you know this talk or that where I've had it in my CD player. And uh, my gosh, I thought, right then, I just knew this is going to be something else. And uh, it was a great touch and, and, and a tribute, I know, to Terrence. Uh, so thank you for that.
4: And uh, it, was, oh, yeah.
0: it was just amazing. And,
4: and, you know, it's one of those synchronicities. I produced that talk, Eros and the Eschaton, in amazing. 1994 in Seattle. Yeah. And here it is, you know, 12 years later, Terrence is gone um I had my own public radio show and it's gone. I got fired from always pressing everybody, you know. And and then here I am and and, and, and it's really the talk uh, really, it's Terrence's premier talk about 2012.
3: Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. and,
4: and, I, and I'm putting this in. Of course, you gave me the recording. I'd lost <laughs> the recording years ago, so I had to go to you to get the, the recording of my own talk <laughs> I, I produced. But here I am, and I'm, I'm putting in. And I'm scratching my head, going, you know, I, I was making this movie 12 years ago. Oh my God, it's so funny because you know I had never heard
0: your name until I read Monument. Right. right in 98 i heard eros in the Escaton. i think for the first time in maybe maybe 2000 or 2001 and right at the beginning of that he says ah thank you know, thanks to jay weidner <laughs> yeah. and i thought and i'm like what yeah. and i thought you've got to be kidding me and and uh, of course then you know everything else sort of came together but it is an amazing it's a remarkable story jay
4: it is and of course in that 1994 talk when he came to seattle is the night before the talk, uh, Terrence and I sat down over some tequila, and uh, um, I ate the worm.
3: His favorite, and, by the way.
4: Yeah, it was his favorite. He ordered this really good uh, Cuero Gold, and um, we, and I sat and I told him the whole Henday research. Uh-huh. And he's like, he's like I, I, you know, Jay, I think you should look at the center of the galaxy. I think you're missing the whole point and i'm and you know i went home thinking you know is he crazy you know <laughs> then i get home and i realize about halfway home in my car that my god the man just cracked the whole thing you know? oh, yeah.
3: Yeah.
4: Oh, so it's just gosh. you know which began really the writing of the book in a way so it's it's just really weird and and, and time does seem to be compressing and in the movie literally wrote itself it's sort of like every novelist dreams that a book writes itself and i never thought that a movie could write itself (laughs) but in this case the movie wrote itself i mean things just appeared there were blocks you know um gene houston was supposed to be in the film and she'd agreed and so we had set up to go all the way down to ashland oregon to film gene and she got pneumonia and She couldn't do it. And we'd rented the car, we'd got the hotel, you know, and and Jean was sick in the hospital, and we didn't know what to do. And so I picked up the phone, and I called Jose Orguez, who lives in Ashland, and the next thing you know you know, we're going on down to Ashland and we're shooting Jose. Yeah, know. You know? Yeah. And he turned out to be amazing.
0: Yeah, he was great. And, you know, Moira Timms is wonderful in oh. it. We'll talk more about some of the people that are in, in the uh, in the film as we get going here. But let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the nature of it to begin with. In other yeah. words, it's about 2012. The Mayan calendar certainly plays a role in this. Why don't we talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, okay. I think that's a great way to begin. The Mayan calendar, of course, is the greatest uh, thing, I guess, that the Mayan people of the Yucatan Yucatan Peninsula really ever created. Besides their pyramids and their their mushroom-based culture and all of this, they invented these incredible maps of time. And their greatest map of time, their greatest calendar, was the long count calendar, which was 13 baktuns long. Each baktun was just a little under 400 years, so it came out to be about 5200 years long. And it started in 3114 BC and it ends in 2012, you know, 6 years from now. Mm-hmm. And this of course exactly parallels recorded history. The first writing, the first civilizations, Sumeria, Hayuk, all of these things all began at the very beginning of the Mayan calendar. And the, so the Mayans are mapping something tangible here. And, uh, and their calendar ends in 2012 with the galactic alignment, of course, and the galaxy in the center of the galaxy seemed to be the overriding factor in this entire thing. What's interesting about this is that the procession of the equinoxes, which is 26,000 years long, is, is of course, mapped by the Yuga system of the Hindus into four 6,500-year cycles. And here the Mayans are using a 5,200-year cycle. What's interesting is that they claim that there's five parts Mm. to the cycle. Well, if you times 5,200 times five, you get... Voila, 26,000 years. So the Mayans are also mapping the procession of the equinoxes, the same exact thing that the Hindus are mapping, the same exact thing that the Cross of Hende is mapping, the same exact thing that the astrologers are mapping with the Zodiac. And so we see that there it's like um, a remnant memory of a once global civilization that knew not only... About, you know, our place in the stars, but our place in time. And I think that is really what's amazing more than anything else about the Mayan calendar, is that these guys have zeroed right in on, you know, something of incredible importance. And as we sit here with a little bit over six years to go now, uh, until the end of time, according to the Mayan calendar it gets more and more difficult for even the most hard, cold, rationalist person to say that something is not going on here, (laughs) that something profound with the human race is not happening. And I think that that is what fuels why the film is so good, and I think it also fuels what is going on in consciousness right now. And I think that there's, as I say in the film, there's no denying it anymore. There cannot be any denying it. If you deny it, you must be crazy, you
0: know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's what it seems like to me. And you mentioned Jose Arguez already a little bit earlier, and, and uh, he makes a wonderful contribution to the film. And he talks a lot about synchronicity. And synchronicity, that's a word you and I have used a couple times already tonight. And that ties into the whole Mayan calendar as well. Maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about what that means.
4: Yeah, I, w- I would love to. Uh, speaking of synchronicity... Um, I did find it quite amazing that you were talking about the European Space Agency uh, craft to the moon, Uh because that's the uh, subject matter of the next film we're making. Really? Uh, Incredible expose of the moon and and NASA and all of this incredible stuff that I've been investigating for years. But getting back to Jose and synchronicity, this is... But Jose, I highly recommend that everybody read the book, Time and the Technosphere."
0: I agree. I yeah. totally agree. Amazing.
4: This guy, he has it down. And he understands that we are living in artificial time, that that the solar year is a false time. And, you know, it would take me a little while to get into the exact reasons why this is so. But as we know, Terrence was mapping moon cycles through the I Ching. And this is what Jose is claiming we have to go back to, is this kind of moon cycle calendar. And he points out in, the, um, in Time in the Technosphere that every 28 years, the solar calendar recapitulates. In other words, exactly 28 years ago from right now, it was a Monday, September 4th.
3: Mm-hmm,
4: right? Mm-hmm. And every 28 years of cycle, the calendar recycles itself like this. What's amazing is he points out that t- exactly 28 years before 9 before September 11, 2001, was the exact date that the World Trade Center completed its construction. That's
0: right. It seems it's, stamped on the ground there, I think.
4: Yes. And 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 so you know exactly one calendar round later, you know it's Mm -hmm. destroyed. Mm -hmm. You know, and Jose says that this is the event that will begin the end of history, that will begin the end of time. And I I completely agree with it with that analysis.
0: Well, that's that's amazing. And you know, as I was watching um, 2012. Uh, the Odyssey as I was watching your new film, you, you, you spend a little bit of time uh, talking about the Hyundai uh, research that you've done. Yeah. And I've had a couple people ask me uh, actually off the air uh, via email or in the forum, people that had questions about that. The idea came up about this this window, this 20-year window that the Hyundai cross sort of points to. And uh, a person made a comment about, well, the the midpoint was in other words they they made the assumption that the midpoint uh, in 2002 was supposed to be some sort of a cataclysmic day right and and i sort of said well it's the, the idea is that it's a it's a window we really don't know if it's a cataclysm or not and but i also noted that september 11th 2001 is pretty darn close to that well, it, to that it midpoint
4: is, it is really darn close and furthermore What's really eerie about the 2001 date is that it's um, if you're following solar cycles, i.e., um, sunspots on you know on the sun, mm-hmm. then 2001 was solar maximum. Right. We then began dec- in a decline, supposedly, although the solar storms are getting worse and worse. Yeah, there have
0: been some huge storms in the last few years. Yeah. Yes,
4: and and again, it, you know, there's an 11-year cycle where it will begin to, you know, go through its cycle and then reach solar maximum again in 2012. So, I, you know, I, I think that you have to understand is that the Hyundai Cross is only marking the equinox midpoint. And it's, it's not really saying that that's the end of time. It's saying that that's the middle of the last, I guess, what they call the cartoon, the last 19.6-year cycle of, of the Mayan calendar, or close to 20, if you if you round it off, but if you're taking solar cycles into consideration, then it would have to be 2001, would have to be when you would say the, the, the midpoint mm-hmm. between solar cycles oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. occurs. And, and again, you know, this all, of course, harkens back to Stanley Kubrick in 2001 and and, and the fact that the terrorists had originally pinpointed the UN building, which looks like the Black Monolith, and mm. and you know they changed it to the World Trade Center at the last moment, and and, and you start you know you get into all this hair-raising synchronicities that you know, you don't don't know what to make of, and but it, it, you have to remember that it may be, it just may be that 2001 is the midpoint, mm. um, you know, of this last cycle if so then you know we can expect <clears throat> we can expect an event around solar maximum which is in the summer of 2012 <laughs> so you know something to look forward to i guess i guess. <laughs> but don't forget there's also a total eclipse in north america in 2012 there is a the venus transit which is happening right and then there and that's right before the d- december 21st a uh, target date of the Mayan calendar, the Venus transit, is in early December. So we're going to be going through a lot of celestial you know, uh, juggling here in 2012, and uh, it all culminates in the great you know, eclipse of the center of the galaxy and the sun. So is the, is the 2002 date targeted by the Henday Cross exactly right? It is exactly right if you're only marking equinox. Is it? But if you're marking solar cycles, the 2001 day right, would be right. a much more appropriate right. midpoint. So, you know, it's difficult to put on a monument like the Cross of Henday, something like solar cycles. Right. But it's much easier to co- codify equinoxes. Mm. And I think that's what they were trying to do, whoever, the mysterious man who built the Cross of Henday
0: trying to do. Wow. All right. Look, uh, we're just about at the bottom of the hour here. Let's take a little break, okay? Yep. And we'll come back in five minutes or so with my friend Jay Widener. Okay, everybody? It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Check it out on the web. You can find information about Jay at uh, com, and you can always link directly over to Jay's site from my website over at mikehagan.com. And if you're interested in material that we've spoken about in the past, uh, Jay's been on the program uh, a couple times at least, and uh, all those programs are well worth listening to. Uh, of course, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, they're there if you'd like, okay? And this one will be there as well in about 24 hours or so, okay? All right, it's Mike. You are listening to Radio Orbit. One more from the Wimshurst Machine here. This song is called Mountain Sunrise. We'll be back in just a minute with Jay Widener. One more time on the web. Check us out, www.mikehagan.com. Good morning to you. It's Mike. you listen to Radio Orbit. That was Mountain Sunrise from the Wimshurst machine. Okay, so it's Mike. you listen to Radio Orbit. It's about 12.37 in a.m. on the morning of September 5th. My guest is Jay Widener on the phone with us live from his place just outside of Seattle. And uh, he is an author and uh, the producer of uh, a wonderful new video uh, documentary, Called 2012 The Odyssey, and you can find out information about Jay and uh, all of his films. And he's done a lot of uh, writing on the web, and has some amazing papers uh, that are up on his website, and uh, just a whole bunch of stuff that is very interesting. So if you'd like to hop on the web, go over to mikehagen.com and then click right over to Jay's website at Jay Widener, j a y w e i d n e r dot com, and you'll be glad you did.
2: All right, Jay. Hi. Hey.
0: Look, uh, I got a question that sort of came up at the break there. Yep. And it's sort of related to something that we were just talking about right toward the end of uh, our first segment there. You mentioned uh, Kubrick and, uh, and 2001. And a number of people have noted that this paper that you wrote uh, called Alchemical Kubrick that came out a number of years ago that was really an amazing piece of work that you did. And there was a question that came up with regard to that. Is, would you mind if I asked you?
2: Absolutely.
0: Go for it. Um, The gentleman says, Mike, I've been meaning to ask Jay a couple of questions for a while. Uh, At one time, you talked about the movie 2001 at length with him. I know he wrote a great analysis of the movie, et cetera, et cetera. But I was interested to find that you guys didn't mention the sequel, 2010, the year we make contact. Mm. Could you ask Jay what he makes of the sequel? Uh, especially the notion that Jupiter could become a second sun. And does he see any alchemical messages in this production? Uh, and uh, do you know if Stanley had any ideas um, with regard to that in that film?
4: Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, again, a more synchronicities abounding. Um, <clears throat> the book uh, that it was based on uh, by Arthur C. Clarke is actually at the very back of the book. He attributes the entire idea for the book to Richard Hoagland. Um, probably Richard Hoagland's finest moment to be, you know, have this book idea attributed to him mm-hmm. by Arthur C. Clarke, and, uh, and and this whole idea about Jupiter becoming a sun is uh, incredibly fascinating, especially when one considers that the original planet. In the original book was Saturn, Mm -hmm. and that the Cassini probe, which is orbiting Saturn right now, has photographed a lot of really weird things. Um, How do I say this? Okay, let's do it this way. The the moon in the book 2001: A Space Odyssey, Bowman does not fly through the monolith as it rounds Jupiter. He lands on the moon of Saturn. Now remember, Stanley couldn't make the ring effects, he says, so he changed it to Jupiter, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. which then forced Arthur C. Clarke to change the sequel to Jupiter. Wow. But in the book, 2001, The Space Odyssey, Bowman lands on a moon of Saturn huh. to find the monolith. And that moon, which is the moon where the strange wall that has been seen by the Cassini. Have you seen the oh, photograph? Oh, oh. Yeah, right.
0: yeah. I, I think it's a different name, though. It's not Io. I mean, yeah, Io's a Jupiter um, moon. I know the one you're talking about. It looks like, it, it looks like an uh, acorn. It's got a big yeah, ridge that runs all around yeah, the middle of it.
4: Completely blanking at the moment on the name. But it's the same moon. And it's a black moon, which is weird, you know, that, that Arthur C. Clarke picks that moon, and then it turns out to be the weirdest thing ever photographed, in the entire solar system uh so what to make of 2010 you know the uh, the uh the sequel to 2001 is that this intelligence the cassini probe around saturn is carrying so much plutonium mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it could be foreseen by some conspiracy theorists that if it accidentally fell into Jupiter, it could ignite, or into Saturn, mm-hmm. it could ignite Saturn and turn it into a star, okay? In other words, cause a chain reaction because of the 300 pounds of plutonium that are on board. Right, right, right. Okay?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Or 72 pounds of plutonium, right. excuse me, that are on board. So it's almost as if, you know, this like strange occult ritual is being enacted in that movie where uh, the creation of stars through you know the magic of science uh, is, is being presented. And life itself, of course, then begins on Europa in the movie and everything. I, I heard personally that Stanley did not care for the movie. I don't really care much for the movie, the sequel, myself. Um, but I do find the idea that... That, you know, Saturn and Jupiter and possibly Uranus and, and Neptune are near-star planets. In other words, they're close to becoming stars.
3: Right, right.
4: And that they could be turned into stars quickly. The real question is, you know, what would happen to us if we had another sun right, you know, right. burning in the sky? And uh, what would happen to life on this planet, etc.? And, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, so I, I I don't know what to make of any of this except that Arthur C. Clarke certainly seems to have a bizarre knowledge of a preordained knowledge of things that is uncanny, and if he isn't receiving information from some ethereal sources, then he's really a lucky guy because he has had his finger on a many many things that have turned out to be ironically Mm. true or close to being true, Mm. especially going back to the moon. One of Arthur C. Clarke's very first short stories that he ever wrote is called The Sentinel, which is the story that Kubrick based 2001 on. Mm. In The Sentinel, early American space probes to the moon discover an artifact on the moon, which has been sitting there waiting for us to find it. And, you know... I hate to say this, but people who are in the know about the Apollo program know that that's exactly what they were trying to do in the Apollo program, was to find artifacts on the moon. And guess what? They found
0: them. I'm sure they did. They did. Richard Hoagland, who you mentioned before, I, I go back and forth sort of on... Some of his work, but but he a long time ago he he put out some amazing uh, work on the moon and showed some imagery that to me still hasn't been uh, uh, explained. And also um, that moon that we're talking about is called Iapetus. 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 Iapetus.
4: Right. Iapetus. Yeah, I worked with Hoagland in the '90s on that stuff, and we had some hair-raising adventures. And I really, wow. I mean, hair-raising adventures. Uh, If I could just quickly tell one, because it's really probably my most hair-raising adventure.
3: Yeah, let me Um, ask.
4: We went to a uh, very, very big investment firm here in Seattle, Richard and I did, to present probably the best idea that I have ever had, which is an IMAX film. We were going to send a probe privately to the moon with 3D cameras and we were going to create an IMAX feature called Return to the Moon. Cool. In which this probe would go around the moon and get 3D imagery. We'd see where the Apollo astronauts landed. And we'd fly over Hyginus Rill and, you know, all the mountains. And we'd interview, you know, 45-minute to an hour-long little featurette. And uh, the whole cost was, we had it budgeted under $30 million, which was cheaper than Jurassic Park was at the time. Uh-huh. And we took this to this investment firm in Seattle, and by the time we got done presenting this IMAX, you know, this IMAX film called *Return to the Moon*, they were picking their jaws up off the table. Right. This, they, they were salivating, you know. And about three or four days later, they had gotten Francis Ford Coppola to get on board, and um, they were looking for a director. Coppola was going to produce it, but in the meantime. They had gotten one of their guys to due diligence on what we were saying. Could we really launch this thing? Could we really get a 3D camera to go around the moon three or four hundred times in orbit? You know, these oh, kinds of things. Right. Make sure we could really do it.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, this guy, whose uh, name uh, is I'm not going to name, but I'll call him Frank. He he was a study. He he flew with Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. He was a fearless guy who landed in the DMZ in Vietnam to. Get GIs out who are wounded, things like that. And he he um, uh, called up NASA and said that, you know we're planning on doing this this film called "Return to the Moon," an IMAX film. Right. And, um, and uh, he, um, so uh, I was getting on a ferry one night going from Seattle to Bainbridge Island, and I met Frank on the ferry. This is about three or four weeks after we'd presented our thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Frank was extremely nervous, which was unusual for Frank. And uh, he asked me to talk to him, so he we went off into a lonely little place on the ferry, and he started telling me this incredible story. And his incredible story was this. He had called up NASA, and he had told them that his law firm, this investment firm, was planning on making this film, right? Right. And the head of NASA at the time said... Frank, you ain't going to the moon, nobody's going to the moon. Mm -hmm. If you launch that thing, we'll blow it out of the sky. Forget the project, no one goes to the moon, not now, not ever. And the project died right on the spot. And uh, from that day forward, you know, um, I have seen things, photographs of things on the moon that are so incredible that, uh, you know, I don't know what to make of them. I mean, incredible things. A, there's a friend of mine who lives in north of Seattle who has taken Apollo 10 photographs and blown them up to be 10 feet by 7 feet big on yeah, paper. Right. And there's, there's buildings, there's arches, there's cables stretching across uh, 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 craters. There's things that are just so bizarre and so weird that um, I really don't know what to make of it. And uh, and those photographs are what was the impetus for going to this investment firm to begin with, because we saw these photographs in '93 and realized that there was something there that was so big and so weird. And of course, we knew that NASA had to have known about it and had to have known about it since at least '62 or '63, if not earlier. And, uh, and, 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 and you know, just one thing after another until finally I just threw my hands up and said, I can't you know, deal with this anymore. It's just too weird, you know. And uh, so that's my little story about the moon. And um, that's going to be the, the, the uh, subject of our next film. So wow. stay tuned. It's going to be really hot. All right. I can't wait. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> Amazing. I didn't know you were involved in all that stuff.
4: Yeah. Yeah. That was back. Well, I got involved. <laughs> Because I was looking into the Cross of Henday, and there's a moon panel on the Cross of Henday. Right,
0: right, on one of the four panels on the yes. bottom there. Yeah. and I
4: had decided that I would investigate every single thing that had to do with every symbol on the Cross of Henday. I made a vow to myself, huh. and I learned all about the science of the sun, and I learned all about the procession of the equinoxes, and I learned all about stars, and I learned all about the moon through with, with this long three-year adventure with Richard Hoagland. Which ended in about I don't know, 95, maybe, uh-huh. and uh, learned incredible things and saw incredible things and talked to, I talked to the psychiatrist who debriefed the astronauts when they got back from the moon, um, you know, all sorts of things, huh. just incredible. And uh, over and over, the high weirdness just prevailed all at right. all times.
0: Amazing. Well, it's uh, the the high weirdness is starting to come out of the shadows, you know. It is. And uh, it's you better be ready for it uh, because uh, the changes are coming, like it or not. I think so, they are. Hey, uh, uh, speaking of that, uh, let's get back to 2012, yep. uh, the Odyssey, for a minute. I I actually spoke with Jeff Stray yesterday. Oh. Uh, for a couple hours, we did it. We did a show in the afternoon, and he's wonderful. And mm-hmm. and and he also contributes uh, really nicely to, to your film. Maybe you could talk a little bit about Jeff and, uh, and his, his angle on this whole thing.
4: Yeah, well, Jeff was another incredible synchronicity in the making of the film. We had gone to uh, the UFO conference in uh, Laughlin, Nevada, to actually videotape uh, Whitley Streber. Uh-huh. But Whitley Strieber, uh got into some kind of weirdness where he couldn't get out of Phoenix to get to the UFO conference. So we were sitting there going, "Oh my goodness, you know, we're stuck here in Laughlin at a UFO conference with people walking around with alien masks on," <laughs> and we're going, "Oh, well, you know, this has nothing to do with 2012." And then I looked down at the at the, uh, at the roster, and there was Jeff Stray, who runs Diagnosis 2012, a great website, right, and who wrote a book, a great book called Beyond 2012.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And I was like, "Oh my God!" You know, so I immediately called him, and he said yes. We got him, and in, in a way, he was absolutely perfect because he fills in all of these gaps that I, you know. I don't think that John Jenkins really has researched, and I haven't researched, and, and all the other people had not really done research on, like the Christian angle
3: in mm-hmm. 2012, mm-hmm. Or,
4: or all sorts of different angles. And um, and uh, incredibly well spoken. Guy very very knowledgeable has a you know a BS meter
3: mm-hmm. that is
4: you know second to none and uh, you know he investigates everything he is on a completely unafraid to criticize mm-hmm. researchers whose work does not stand up to the scrutiny that he gives it uh, fortunately he scrutinized the Henday work mm-hmm. uh, for uh, almost two years from 2001 to 2003 and came away convinced that the Henday work was one of the most important parts of the 2012 puzzle mm-hmm. and um and and then so getting him in the film was just this incredible synchronicity we were just so lucky and mm. thankful that you know we didn't have to go to England to get him that he was here in the United States that he was willing to do it and that he added so much to the film and he did and he brought just all sorts of incredible things that just I had never thought of. Hmm. He's the guy who re- originally found out that you know the 2012 solstice galactic alignment happens exactly at 11:11 11, 11 couch time. I know. I know. You know. 11:11 couch time.
0: And that's on the that's on like the freaking uh, naval uh, observatory calendar. Yes. Yeah. That's what John Jenkins told me.
4: Uh, it is. It is. <laughs> it was Jeff Stray who found that. It was like like well you know come on <laughs> <laughs> i
0: know i wonder why i have been seen that 11 eleven eleven for the last 10 years you know every time yeah. i look at my clock or something it's yeah like...
4: and, and and jeff Stray is just a great guy and he his work is second to none i'm trying right now to you know if anybody out there can help we're trying to get jeff's book beyond 2012 published in the united states it's only available in England right now
0: well you know what as a matter of fact he told me yesterday that it's now on Amazon here in the States oh it, ha- it happened just this weekend
4: oh that is the greatest news I encourage everyone to get that book and read it it's the best compendium of information on 2012 ever published in a way it's the book form of the movie and uh, it's just a great book and well written I consider beyond 2012 to be like the cosmic trigger of the 21st century wow yeah robert anton wilson yeah, amazing that good wow yeah and wow,
0: what an endorsement
4: yeah it's one of my very very favorite books and um i had a, in fact and just as an aside with all this i decided to do the 2012 film but one day i was walking on the beach in seattle trying to decide what film to do next this is about a year ago and i had jeff strays beyond 2012 book in my hand as i was walking down the sidewalk on a nice hot summer day and um, i saying, what should i do what should i do you know asking the universe what the next film should be Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden someone's riding by on a bicycle this guy is about 40 and he slams on the brake of his bike (laughs) and he looks at me and he says what's that book you have I look at him, I go, Well, this is a book by a friend of mine named you know, Jeff Stray, fell beyond two thousand twelve. He goes, Man, I wish I could find out more about two thousand twelve. What? Yeah, this is I swear this is a true story. And and and, and 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 he just got on his bike and he leaves. I don't even know who this guy is. And I'm standing there and I'm I'm looking at the book looking at this guy. I look at the book, you know, and I go I think I know what yeah. the next film should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so.
2: Oh, man. It, 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 the, the only what
4: a, a piano didn't drop on your head, you know. I, it's just weird, you know. And, um. and, and, and you know, the, it, um, there's this incredible article in Mysteries Magazine this month about luck. I don't know if you saw it or not, but it's well worth reading. This British scientist did a study of lucky people,
2: right? <laughs> uh-huh.
4: And what he did was he put... He he, he grouped together a bunch of photographs, and inside this group of photographs, he stuck a little note that says, if you read this note, tell the interviewer that you read the note and received $20.
3: Right.
4: And he just slipped this thing in there. And then he took people who said they were lucky, and he showed them this group of photographs. And then he took people who said they were unlucky, and he showed them this group of photographs. And the lucky people saw the (laughs) note like 85% 85% of the time, and the unlucky people missed the note. Amazing. Yeah, and and, and 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 so he concluded that lucky people aren't really luckier. It's just that lucky people are paying attention. Uh-huh. You make your own luck, right? Yeah, you make your own luck. As Mark Twain once said, he took me... You know, 50 years to become an overnight sensation. You know, you make your own luck and, and you do it your way. And, and I think that's really what it's about. It's paying attention to the signs that are going on around you. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, synchronicities are everywhere. We're just not paying attention.
0: Wow. Great uh, uh, great observation, Jay. You know, and this whole idea of, of synchronicity is reflected in mythology, but it's also reflected in the sky, in the astronomy above us and you know rick levine is another guy who i love who's in uh, uh doesn't play a real big role in the in the film but but he's uh he's great and he has a great sense of humor and i love the way he looks at what happ- what's happening in the heavens and then compares it to the mythologies down here
4: yeah yeah rick's rick's a funny guy and you know telling the people that are watching the Make sure that they don't cancel their appointments for 2013. That's you know. right. Yeah, don't scream, can, you know. Don't cancel your appointments <laughs> for 2013. That's right. Yeah. Be prepared, but, you know, don't go overboard here. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's right. And and, and and Rick Levine, you know, has. He, he Rick Levine, you know, and I have been talking for years, and he, at first, was mighty skeptical of all of this 2012 stuff, and I have been slowly trying to convince him that the the way that you can fall into a sign in the zodiac or leave a sign in the zodiac according to falconelli is governed by the galactic axis so if you use the galactic axis as your axle in in the, in the great wheel then you know that when you're aligned up to the center of the galaxy you are now passing through either going from the sign of Leo to Virgo or going from Pisces to Aquarius. To
2: Aquarius right. So
4: people are ambiguous about when we enter Aquarius or when we leave, you know, uh, uh Pisces and all this. And, 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 and the, and the thing is, is that Vulcanelli is definitely saying, and the Mayan calendar is definitely saying that you must use the galactic alignment to find your place in the Zodiac. And slowly but surely, you know, Rick Levine is being converted over to this belief system. Hmm. And um, it's pretty much undeniable once you realize the importance of the center of the galaxy. And the fact is that it is, you know, the very center of the galaxy is 100 million stars, you know. He's like, Come on, this is the this is the most important place anywhere nearby. Right, right. And of course if a star can have influence on us, if a planet can have influence on us, then what about a central star that's a hundred million stars big? Right. What kind of influence does that have on us? And the fact that you can't really see the center of the galaxy means that this is an occult power, occult i. e hidden Hidden. secret dark and and so we have a a gigantic huge cosmic source in our nearby neighborhood that is virtually invisible to us Hmm. and this really is the source of what the ancients were calling occult and it's at the center of the galaxy and when the center of the galaxy lines up with the sun er, periodically every 13,000 years that's when the stuff hits the fan and that's what's happening right now the stuff is hitting the fan and there's no way back and it's up to us right now to choose you know which way we go here and hopefully we're going to choose the right way rick levine is a great guy and he you know he plays a vital role in the film i
0: think all right well it is amazing and and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other people that are in the film when we come back after a little break here okay all right all right everybody it's uh coming up on one o'clock it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. Check us out on the web, www.mikehagan.com. And you can also find out information about KOPN on the web at kopn.org. And Jay Widener is with us from his place outside of Seattle. We'll be talking with him for another hour or so and uh, stick around. Amazing stuff. Talking about his new DVD, 2012, The Odyssey, and uh, all kinds of other stuff mixed in between. All right, this is Mike, one more time, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. This is a song called The Rise and Fall of the Anasazi. It's the Wimshurst Machine, independent music on Radio Orbit, back in just a few minutes. All right, the Wimshurst machine, that's called the Rise and Fall of the Anasazi. It's Mike, you're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit. It's at FM and uh, coming to you live from the heart of Missouri, 915 East Broadway, right downtown in Columbia. And uh, my guest is Jay Widener. He's been on the line with us for the last hour. We'll be talking for another hour or so. And uh, he's made a wonderful new video production that's called... 2012, the Odyssey, and I hope that uh, many people have the opportunity to see it. And Jay, before we go any further, I, uh, I wanted to make a note about something and actually commend you and congratulate you about something. There's this concept of uh, that comes up in the film about the noble savage, and there's a myth for you, actually, you know. But you made a good point of how unfortunate that sort of position is, and. perspective so thanks for uh, for showing our ancestors in in a a respectful and an honorable light because I think it's really important that people realize the significance of these folks that uh, that have come before us and we really do stand on the shoulders of of giants
4: Uh, well we really do and it was one of the main things that Sharon and I were trying to get across in the film was that this knowledge that that we have uh, about the center of the galaxy, about the end of time, while it does run through other cultures, uh, you know, in the Tibetans and, and things, it really came from Native Americans. And even the builder of the Cross of Henday may have gotten it from the Native Americans. And this is, you know, the the kind of the one thing that no one wants to talk about, But we felt that it was really important in the film, and so in in a way, Sharon is following a trek across the United States, going from famous Indian Native American site to uh, another, to others, from the um, from Zion National Park uh, to the place where the Georgia Guidestones were, which was the center of the world, to the Cherokee following the line of the mayans and the incans and eventually the last people that she meets in the movie are the incan elders and so this knowledge came from there and a lot of things got didn't make the cut unfortunately because the concepts were too difficult but you know it bears repeating that the Masons, who are featured in the film also, were completely obsessed with the Mayans. La Plignon was a French Mason, and 300 years ago, he was in Mexico studying the Mayan glyphs. Hmm. And, And Benjamin Franklin was obsessed with the Mayans and obsessed with the Iroquois. He based the Republic of the United States on the Iroquois nation and the way that they worked out their problems. That's all based, everything, our triumvirate government with the judicial separated from the legislative, separated from the executive branches, that's all Iroquois. Hmm. And, and, and and Benjamin Franklin made a, a, a magic square, and this magic square was 8 by 8, or 64 squares. And each line, each square had a number in it, And all the numbers, wherever way they added up, across the square, added up to 260. Hmm. This is what inspired Jose Arguelles.
0: Wow, and 64, again, that that ties back into the I Ching again.
4: Exactly. And Jose Arguelles, and unfortunately, this this will be featured in the sequel, which will be out next year, called 2012, The Odyssey, The Chronicles. Um, We will show jose's whole exposition on on benjamin franklin's magic square that we believe he got from the mayans huh. and benjamin franklin is showing you how the matrix of time falls in to the 64 codons of life of the i ching and, and, and suddenly when you realize you know that one of our founding fathers is dealing with something so esoterically profound as this magic square that he is, that, that we talk about in the film, in, in the sequel of the film, then you realize that the founding fathers were obsessed with the Native Americans. And unfortunately, you know, the country they created decimated them, put them in concentration camps, and um, only now are we beginning to retrieve this incredibly valuable knowledge. And um, I hope it's not too late. I really think that's one of the things we were trying to accomplish in the film was to make sure that this message got out that these are not noble savages. Mm -hmm. These people are incredibly advanced and that they knew things that we are only now beginning to understand here at the end of time. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. All right, well, um, let's see. From there, let me ask you a question about... uh, Back to the galactic core for, for a moment. Jose and, uh, and Greg Braden, to a certain extent, both talked about this energy that uh, theoretically is emanating from the core that uh, is affecting everything, basically. You sort of alluded to it uh, earlier when you talk about the, the density of stellar material at the core, but, uh, but Jose talks about some sort of like an actual beam of energy,
4: yeah, Jose's interpretation of the Mayan calendar, which is extremely radical and extremely profound at the same time, and rubs to be honest with you, rubs a lot of, of Mayanologists the wrong way. Mm-hmm. What Jose has done though is he is he is saying that the fall into history that began in thirty one fourteen BC was the Earth and the solar system Entering into a 5,200-year-wide uh, beam that's coming from the center of the galaxy, or what the Mayan called the Hunabku. Ku, and that we this this beam that we entered into uh, causes the densification of time, the rise of materialism, the rise of science, imperialism, uh, the city-states. Uh, everything, the fall into history, Mm -hmm. and that we are leaving this beam now and through all the way to the end of 2012. And when we get out the other side, we're all going to kind of look back at the last 5,200 years and, and say to each other, why were we treating each other like that?
3: Yeah, well, uh, what why was
4: that going on? You know, and <laughs> yeah. well, well, I didn't really mean that. You know, and and let's be buddies again. You know, and, yeah. and 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 so I, you know, this is what he's saying, and there is some degree of evidence that this is actually happening. Uh, there are, um, you know, the, the magnetic field of the Earth is dropping, and 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 the magnetic fields of all the planets in the solar system, including the sun, is dropping. The sun doesn't have a north and a south pole any longer. Right. Greg Braden shows right. Right. In, in the film. And, and, and so, you know, there's something going on here. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's solar system-wide. It's weird. It doesn't make any sense. And um, what would cause, you know, what causes these magnetic fields and then what causes them to decrease or increase and it does appear to be some kind of galactic influence that causes almost everything that happens to us
3: mm-hmm.
4: you know there's these weird coincidences why is the precession of the equinoxes 26000 years why is the center of the galaxy Hmm. So pretty much twenty six thousand light years away. Right. Why does every human being live approximately twenty six thousand days? You know.
0: Yeah, and then we have the gestation again. Now that's an interesting thing. Gestation is two hundred and sixty days.
4: Yes, exactly. Right. And of course, Jose, you know, his great theory is you know there's two hundred and sixty, baktun. Mm-hmm. Or these slightly under four hundred year periods that are we're talking about in this fifty two hundred year long yeah, cycle. count cycle, mm-hmm. and he points out that this is like the gestation of the planet, mm-hmm. and indeed that's what it appears to be. And you know, Terence used to always talk about stumbling into the room with the woman screaming and blood right, being all around, right. and you think that there's a violent act going on, but really there's a birth happening.
0: Right, and it's a miracle.
4: Yeah, it's a miracle. And I think that's what's going on here. And I think that Jose's right on target. And you know, this kind of ideas is, is it's permeated so many of our um, so much of our culture. And it was all really because of Jose back in the 80s that we don't really give credit anymore to what Jose had come up with. But Jose has this new series of books out. He just put out the second one and They're called the Cosmic History Chronicles, <laughs> and they're these. And he's putting out one book uh, every year from 2005 to 2012.
0: He's outrageous. I love the way he writes too. I mean, he's just a. He's so sophisticated. This Time in the Technosphere. I mean, it, it was so deep. I couldn't believe it when I first picked it up.
4: No, it's it's, it's sorcery. And, uh, I, I, every time I'm reading, I'm just finishing up the second volume of the Cosmic History Chronicles, and I swear. Every time I'm reading a book by Jose, I dream of Jose all night. You know, he's like coming into my dream and giving me information and, yeah. and discussing things with me. And I wake up and oh, go, "That, you know, that is weird." You oh know? gosh! And and he he's got some magical ability. But this Cosmic Hist- History Chronicles, it, it's it's a work of genius. It's it's pure genius, and it's not scientific genius. It's intuitive genius. It's mm. a different kind of genius, and I think. You know, it takes a while for it to get into your soul, but once it does, it never leaves. Mm-hmm. And Jose's work on time and, and galactic physics and all of this stuff, you know, is considered incredibly outlandish when it first appears. But as time goes by, Jose gets more and more writer all the time. And um, I think he's right. I think that the Earth is finishing up a 5,200-year gestation period, and a kind of a not a new species per se, but a new kind of human is happening. And it's not like we have to die and this new human is formed, as in evolutionary biology. Is it's as if the genetic structure is changing within us right now, mm-hmm. and that we are actually shifting as we breathe and as we live and of course greg braden is a geologist and so he studied you know the decreasing magnetic fields and 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 indeed you know that is what's going on so you know we can look at the solar physics we can look at the physics of the magnetic fields of the earth we can look at jenkins work on the galactic physics and you know, unless you're completely blind You have to say there is some correlation between these cosmic bodies and and us, us humans Mm -hmm. here. And, you know, we are what's important here. And, you know, let there be no mistake about it. uh, Human beings are what is being shifted here. We are the focus of the galactic intelligence. And I think that's what Jose brings to the table and, and has been bringing to the table for a long time.
0: Yeah, and it, and it and it's very reflective of Terrence's ideas, you know. Yes, it is. And speaking of, you know, people who got it right a long time ago, <clears throat> when I spoke to Dennis earlier this year, we were talking about the invisible landscape. And he made the point and said, you know, well, you know, back in 1974, you know, nobody was talking about electron spin resonance and quantum tunneling, <laughs> this sort of
2: stuff, right?
0: Yeah. Like, and now, you know, this is this, the this, this sort of talk of the day, right? Yeah. But, I mean, those guys nailed it. And, they did. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't particularly scientific, the, well, you know, as far as right. our, the, the narrow scope of science that we uh, t- tend to, to work with in this uh, particular time. But, I mean, regardless, man, they nailed it.
4: Well, you know where does where do these ideas come from? Right, so, right. Watson and Crick worked on the DNA molecule for years, and then Watson goes home tired and exhausted, has a glass of wine, goes to bed, and has a dream. Mm-hmm. And in the dream, he sees the double helix. Right. Right. Well, Terence and Dennis, you know, uh, run down into Peru, or no Colombia,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and uh, you know take you know huge massive amounts of, of psilocybin mushrooms and uh, are, are the first people, you know, to realize that the I Ching is, is mapping moon cycles. <laughs> why didn't someone else see that? Right, it's only been 5,000 years. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like one of those things you hit yourself in the head and say, hey, why did I think of that, you know? And uh, um, this, this kind of stuff is just all through this work, in private conversations with many, many people, about two thousand and twelve, I have heard many stories of psilocybin being the impetus for the research mm. that and, and, and even in my own case and and so you know then you look at the Yucatan Peninsula and Guatemala, and you realize that you know this is one of the most fertile areas in the world for these psilocybin mushrooms, and and, and, and and psilocybin has this peculiar effect of, of, of immersing you in circular time and removing you from linear time, and this is why it, it is so powerful, because in the strong and profound psilocybin experience, not the the small doses that are taken by people who want to have a good time and
0: go to a rock concert or something. Rock
4: concert, but the large and profound doses that Terence always recommended, you lose track of linear time, and, and suddenly synaptis, synapses begin firing in in non-linear fashion, and you begin correlating ideas and concepts that had been separated by linear time, and suddenly revelation hmm. becomes you know, a, a momentary event in, in every second of, the, of that experience. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I took psilocybin once, I was up at 14,000 feet in the Rockies, mm-hmm. and I took psilocybin once, and I looked up between Sagittarius and Scorpio, and I saw the center of the galaxy, you know. And I realized that I was looking, you know, at hundreds of millions of stars. And I fell into the center of the galaxy, mm-hmm. you know. Just fell into it, all the way in. And uh, I came back, and you know, it was, it was one of the most incredible experiences that I've ever had in my life.
2: Man, oh my God!
4: And you know, so and this is not just me. I mean, I'm not going to name names because right. they told me in private, but. I assure everyone listening that these things have, uh, you know, have had an amazing and profound effect. And so, Dennis and Terence discovering the I Ching and the moon cycles, and the fact that you know novelty is what history is about, and how novelty is disappearing at the end of time until we're just living a novel synchronous experience all the time. Right. That is a revelation brought to us by, I I will even go one step further, the spores that create psilocybin are born of intergalactic intelligence Mm. and that they are seeding, all worlds are seeded with these spores, but only worlds like the earth can make them grow. They have to have water, they have to have night and day, they have to have certain conditions, right. and these conditions create intelligence, create consciousness. The, the 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 mushroom itself is how the core of the galaxy communicates to the outer reaches of wow. the galaxy.
0: You know, my God, Jay. Um First of all, John Jenkins and I have talked about this on the air, and and he makes it very clear that it was involved in his research, and Absolutely. and 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 then of course if you go to Izapa, you find mushroom stones and ceremonial uh, imagery all over the place. Uh, with right. this. So it's not something to be ashamed of anymore, or anything like that. No. And you know, I'll tell you something else. Uh, uh, I'll share a, a personal experience of mine, a brief one, a psilocybin experience that I had. I was I wrote I was writing in in a journal, right.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I wrote over and over, there is a leading edge of light. 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 I wrote pages of this phrase. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm reading this back, you know, the, the next day, after 15 pages, it says in the next page on one line it says, and it is coming.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it is, and I—I
0: I mean, you know, for my own say, I, I was like, "Oh my God!" And blew, it blew my own mind, you know.
4: Yeah, no, these, these things are so profound, and and and, and 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 I think, honestly, if you look back at if you look back at even the early work of Timothy Leary, and he was getting these incredible recidivism rates in prisons um, using psilocybin mushrooms oh. on hardened criminals. Right. And 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 they were being changed in one five-hour experience from violent and mm-hmm. and you know sexually abused and and, and abused right. children into into enlightened beings
0: right.
4: who well, never went back to prison again.
0: I know, and well, you know, the the work that, that just came out from Hopkins from Johns Hopkins yes. is huge and it's big, and uh, and that's why you know if you need validation. You know, for everybody out there, if you've got a problem with any of this stuff, you need verification, validation, and you got to have it from a mainstream, institutionalized source. Well, now you have one. Just go read the study that was released by Dr. Roland Griffiths yeah. from Johns Hopkins uh, back in July, and it will tell you exactly what Jay is saying, that uh, the people that had these experiences in the right conditions, and it's not something that should be taken lightly, and we appreciate that, and you need to be smart. Uh, when you do anything like this, and you need to know what the hell you're doing, Absolutely. which means you learn first. You know, Terence uh, said to me, "You know, the first stop on the psychedelic voyage is the library."
4: Absolutely.
0: Right. So you learn, and it's. Uh, but r- regardless, uh, the the people at Johns Hopkins did an amazing piece of work, they did. and and, it, and it's all over the world. That piece of work it ran all around the planet, and it's still uh, making waves. Jay. Oh,
4: it, it's going to continue. And, you know, it just it just gets better and better and better. Another thing that people might want to do is read Terrence's introduction to the Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide, <laughs> which is a channeled piece of work that Terrence did um, channeling the mushroom. And it is probably one of the most poetic uh, things ever written. And it's all about how, uh, how, it, how the mushroom and the spore is the carrier wave of galactic intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that these spores can exist in outer space for infinite amount of time without losing any of their integrity. And that they literally a spore could travel across space for a hundred million years and then fall through our atmosphere, fall to the earth, some rain could come Mm -hmm. and it would sprout Mm -hmm. and you know that to me is astonishing that that we have in our hands a plant that possibly could have traveled you know across the depths of space and still survive to grow again
3: right and 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 and
4: and and the way that mycelia grows under the ground it's just all incredibly fascinating and um Again, you know, we owe so much to Terrence and Dennis that um, you know we dedicate the film to Terrence because he had such a profound influence on us. And uh, you know, there's no way that you know we could ever do him justice. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really sad. I showed the film in our little small town, and I had some people that were under 40 come up to me after the film and say. Who is that guy with the weird voice? Right? Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, "Oh my god, Terence is already being forgotten."
0: Well, not in these woods.
4: <laughs> well, and hopefully not and hopefully the film will revive his memory again so that people can go back and review his books and his tapes because it's just a wealth of incredible information. And the, the guy is an unmitigated genius
0: <laughs> absolutely yeah. and uh and yeah it's, re- it's remarkable to this day i mean i can listen to you know i just randomly pick one of those old talks and i and, and i love every mo- every moment of them
4: yeah i own all of them and i uh they've been a great influence on my life and i encourage everyone to get Terence's tapes uh, they're well worth the uh, money and listen to them because they are awesome
0: <laughs> all right look uh let's see we spoke a little bit about about Greg Braden, and uh, and all of this stuff ties together because the bottom line, I think, Jay, or at least one of the bottom lines, is that regardless of the causal factors, the environment is shifting, and 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 when the environment changes, whether it's magnetic fields or a combination of magnetic fields and climatic changes and CO2, you know, levels of different uh, compounds in the atmosphere, whatever. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of dynamic change going on on the planet. When that happens, organisms, whether they're apes or mushrooms, will probably have to adapt or change in some way, shape, or
4: form. Uh, that's very true, and that's exactly what's going on. And um, you know, it's it's as H.G. Wells said, you know, history is a race between disaster and education, hmm. and we are on that we are at that crossroads right now whether we can adapt to the changes that are happening or whether we fail as a species and i think you know that that is the that is actually the reason that the film was made and it was made because it was a conscious decision to make the film in a way that would cause the people watching the film to decide what kind of future they wanted. Mm -hmm. And if they decided what kind of future they wanted now, six years before that date, um, then there's a much better chance that that future would happen. Mm -hmm. Most people are not considering the world six years from now. Mm -hmm. They're worried about their rent next month, and they're worried about their food bills, and whether they're going to have a job. And um, so, you know, just the elites who have time are are thinking about, you know, how to manipulate world events to, to their advantage six years from now. So we decided, Sharon and I decided, that we were going to, you know, use the alchemy of time in this film and consciously cause people, the masses, us, to shape our own future for, for a change. And, um, and, you know, so that's, I think that's the real uh, alchemic, alchemy of the film uh-huh. and what it's trying to do. And I think it, I think it worked. I really do. I, I think it worked. And, and Greg, of course, was a great contributor to this. And he's, you know, a wonderfully charismatic guy and mm-hmm. a great talker and an old friend of mine. And, um, again, another synchronicity with him. I was attending a lecture by Jonathan Goldman in Seattle, and I hadn't seen Greg in, let's see, eight or nine years. And uh, there's Greg standing in this New Age store in Seattle, right? And I'm like, Greg, you know, how are you doing? And then as I'm watching the lecture, I'm trying to figure out, you know, why the powers that be, you know, sent Greg into my life again suddenly. And then I realized, of course, that it was because I needed to get him on camera to film. So after the lecture, I said, hey, Greg, I want you to be in my 2012 film. He says, oh, great. And I said, so where are you living now? He goes, oh, I'm living. And then he gives an address, which is... a block and a half away from where I'm living, (laughs) you know, and my jaw drops, and I go, go, how long have you been living there? He goes, oh, about a year, you know, which is exactly when I had moved into the same place, so Greg and I had been living about a block and a half away from each other for a year, and never seen each other, never run into each (laughs) other,
3: (laughs) unbelievable,
4: yeah, so I went down, and a couple days later, and got him in the local park down there, and and Greg, you know, was incredible, and he brought in all the magnetic, oh yeah, and the geology, which is really important to understand about our magnetic field and how they, you know, what the, what effects they have on consciousness, and and how a declining magnetic field can be either seen as a disaster or it can be seen as an incredible opportunity because the interference waves that an increased magnetic field has on our consciousness is being diminished right. so if you combine you know certain kinds of shamanic efforts with a declining magnetic field you know you can co-create reality in a faster more efficient way it's interesting because you know if you go to the Great Pyramid and you go to the King's Chamber There's no magnetic field in the king's chamber. It's one of the most bizarre things in the world. You know, how did the Egyptians build, you know, a structure that has no magnetic field inside it? And I'm talking about the Earth's magnetic field completely missing.
3: Can't be measured there.
4: Yeah, you sit there with a compass and the compass points at you in the in the king's (laughs) chamber because you're the only magnetic field around that Um, it can find.
3: Oh my God!
4: Yeah. And so, you know, what is this about? Why would they do this? And the reason they did it was if you're sitting in the king's chamber, uh, you know, for thousands of years now, you and you meditated, or you were doing shamanic work, your shamanic work would have more efficacy. It would have more results, because you were not getting interfered with by the Earth's magnetic field, which is extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. So right now, the entire Earth is becoming the king's chamber. Yeah. We're losing our magnetic field. This is why we can talk about stuff on a radio show that 10 years ago no one could talk about. Right. You know, people are, are, are hearing it for the first time. That's because the interference patterns are going away. And this is why Bush and Rumsfeld are having so many problems Executing their little plans huh. because everybody's figuring out, you know, way ahead of time what's going on, and they can't do their little secretive work anymore because mm-hmm. everything's just blown out into the open. Nobody believes their BS anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, more people believe that nine one one was an inside job. Uh, that almost forty percent of the U.S. public now believes that nine one one was an inside job. It took twenty years for the U.S. public to realize that the JFK assassination was an inside job.
3: Right, right, so right. things
4: are happening much quicker. People are wisening, wisening up much faster now and all these things that we've been talking about have to do with this, but the Earth's declining magnetic field is kind of that hidden thing mm. that nobody has really talking thought about, about. too right, much, right. but Braden has right. a few others. Very, very cool. Yeah, it's incredible. Man.
0: All right, Jay, I, I've got an <clears throat> a related question with regard to alchemy. We've been talking about changes in the body, physical changes, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and, and when you bring about a physical change in your body, you can affect the reality around you in whatever way. The alchemists were interested in the transmutation of the human spirit, so to speak. Yep. And did that include a bodily change? In other In other words, is there an internal alchemy where, where the body becomes the vessel and actually produces something or yes. creates the stone? or so- Maybe uh, you could talk to that a little bit.
4: Oh, boy. It's my favorite subject. Um, yeah. What, what people don't realize is that inside their pineal gland is a crystal. It's a little piece of zirconium. It's a diamond. And every human being as a crystal inside their brain, at the very center of their brain. Birds and animals have this same thing. This is how birds know when where to fly south and north. Okay? Because this crystal is resonating with the frequency of the Earth's magnetic field. Okay, okay it's very important to understand this. It's also very important to understand that dimethyltryptamines and psilocybins are, which contains dimethyltryptamines, um, <clears throat> penetrate the brain's shield to get into the pineal gland. The psychedelic experience is coming from this crystal that sits inside your brain. Okay, It's a chemical frequency shift caused by the tryptamines that causes the vibrational... Frequencies of this crystal to be altered while you're in a shamanic state. Okay? Mm -hmm. This is alchemy. This is what the alchemists were doing. The alchemists were using plants, using substances, using techniques to change the vibratory nature of this crystal inside the pineal gland. This is like the greatest secret of alchemy. And what The alchemists were trying to do was to create, uh, let's see, an extrapolation of this diamond in the head that would spread through the body and create what they called the diamond body. In other words, an altered genetic state that crystallizes the body and turns it into a being of light. So they would take the lead of the body and they would slowly, over time, crystallize it into a being of light. Baba, the great Tibetan, he turned into a being of light and melted the very walls of the cave that he was in, uh, where he did his uh, alchemy. in In Peru, we were going through the caves of where the shamans work, and we found caves with melted walls, with handprints right into the melted walls. Wow. And the Peruvian shaman told us that their goal was to become bodies of light, that there were men among us now who were men who were bodies of light that you couldn't see. But we're there all the time, working and changing reality, and and this is what the alchemists firmly believed, and this goes back to the, the myths of Jesus and what he did, and and the myths of Krishna, and uh, all through m- the mythopoetic history of the earth, we have this same myth of the some arcane ability of the human being to be transformed into a body of light, to change their genetic structure. Jeremy Narby has shown in his books that the DNA itself is built around a small photon. So the DNA of our bodies is governed by light.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: Okay? So you can, in alchemy... You can, if you know the right processes, ignite the genetic structure, the photon genetic structure of the body, ignite it like Jupiter is ignited in 2010, the sequel to to, uh, 2001, and create a light body. What the Incan elders are saying in our movie is that we're all going to have this ability very soon and they call it homo-luminous,
3: mm-hmm. and that
4: a man of light, the human light person, is about to emerge out of us. And this is exactly what the alchemists are saying. And it's the actual secret of Jesus' teachings and the secret teachings of Christianity, and also Tibetan Buddhism, Hinduism, um and the Mayans right. all believe the same thing, as do many Native American mm-hmm. uh, uh, religions and myths teach this same thing, you know. And is this a, a pipe dream, you know? I don't know. Is it true? I think it is, actually. I think it is. I just think that at this time in history, in, in this last cycle of history, it's just become really difficult for us to do it because Mm -hmm. magnetic fields have been so intense for five six thousand years that we're just lucky to survive right and now they're declining and now the secrets are being revealed but they're not being revealed by any person Mm -hmm. they're being revealed by the consciousness itself Mm -hmm. and so everyone is seeing it all at once and and so some people think it's a conspiracy, or some people think that the great masters are releasing the information, and maybe they are. I don't know. But I prefer to think it's just coming from from the overmind of mm-hmm. the human race, and that it's our destiny, and it's what we've been waiting for. And the alchemists are getting us ready for this great moment at the end of time. And so are the Incans, and so are the Mayan, and the Cherokee, and the Iroquois, and the Tibetans and all of them. This is what they're doing. It's like not an accident that the Tibetans were released out of Tibet in, in the 50s by the Chinese. They are here to spread this knowledge right now. At the end of time, the knowledge of, of, of the Kala Chakra or the Wheel of Time, and 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 the Dalai Lama is spreading the Kala Chakra teachings everywhere right now. Why is he spreading? you know, this most secret of Tibetan knowledge about the ending of the cycle of time right now. You know, because he knows. And he knows that he was predicted to be the last Dalai Lama. So he is the last Dalai Lama because it's the end of time and we won't need any more Dalai Lamas (laughs) anymore. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that really is, it's a great question. It's one of my favorite subjects. The pineal gland is the secret. It's the secret almond it's what they called the mystic almond it's what descartes called the seat of the soul it is
0: mr materialist you know
4: yes exactly (laughs) Yes, I love Descartes. He goes out of his way to try to prove the existence of God, and by the time he's done, he's proved that there is no need for God. <laughs> it's the strangest thing I've ever seen, you know. Yeah,
0: and he gets his ideas from dreams.
4: Yeah, and he gets <laughs> his ideas from dreams, which are coming through the pineal by. The right. Way. Yeah. By the way, with dimethyltryptamine in, in the middle of the night. That's right, and you know the the pineal gland is an eye. People don't realize this.
0: Yeah, this is the third eye, supposed it, to be. It right.
4: really is an undeveloped eye, and I've seen, you know, I've held pineals in my hand and looked at them. Whoa, that's sort of creepy. Yeah, it looks like a little eyeball. Wow. And you ever see this great movie, The Serpent and the Rainbow? I have. Okay, so this scientist from Harvard goes to Haiti to look into the Haiti, you know, shamanic uh, voodoo. Right, the death rituals and all that. Death rituals. Yeah. And he meets some shaman. It's a great film. He meets some shaman, and, you know, he goes out and he gets, I don't know, I can't remember, you know, eye of bat and, (laughs) you know, Three leaves of grass and you know, he's putting all this stuff together and, and the scientist is going, Oh my god, you know, this guy's insane, right? Right. And then finally the guy says, Now there's just one last thing we need to make this work right? Uh-huh. So watch the film, it's right in there. The next scene they're in a graveyard and they're digging up a grave and the shaman says, This guy died yesterday and he takes the guy's pineal gland right out of the grave and pulls it up and, and puts it right in the camera and says the missing ingredient huh. right and right. puts it into the formula you're like what <laughs> <laughs> you've got to be kidding uh. and and so you know the pineal gland is why we're here it's everything that we are it's consciousness it's the great attenuator to galactic consciousness and um, you know the psilocybin mushroom and dimethyltryptamine and shamanic states all activate the pineal gland
0: wow amazing all right look uh, here's another one for you Uh, we haven't talked too much about Tolkien but a couple people on the web have uh, mentioned him so maybe quickly a little bit about uh, Tolkien and the relation to alchemy you did another great piece uh, on the Lord of the Rings and I also j- just recently had this sort of uh, linguistic connection between the word Tolkien and then the Mayan calendar, the Tzolkin.
4: Yes, yes, I've noticed that too. I
0: can. I just sort of that just sort of blew me away earlier today. Yeah. So.
4: Well, you know, Tolkien's one of my favorite subjects, and. I think in the end, that's probably my favorite article that I've ever written.
0: Wow, it's fantastic. Open
4: at the end of time.
0: Yeah, and everybody, we, we haven't given out the web address in a little while. Uh, we didn't take a break there at the bottom. So uh, Jay's stuff is available on the web at and You can always link there from my site over at mikehagan.com. And, uh, yeah, lots of great stuff over there. But the piece on uh, 2001 and then this uh, this amazing alchemical dispensation about uh, the Lord of the Rings series is just great
4: yeah Tolkien um, how Tolkien came about his knowledge I don't really know I assume that it was because he was a, a linguist and a philologist right and he studied language and he realized that language was holding great secrets and that these secrets had been lost over time and because he was looking at words as they were thousands of years ago he began discovering the hidden history of the human race. And he told people in his very many, many letters, insisting that Lord of the Rings was not an allegory, that it was the true history of Europe 6,500 years ago. Now, it's strange because 6,500 years ago is exactly one quarter of the processional cycle ago, Mm -hmm. which would be right when we went from what the alchemists called the Bronze Age into what they called the Iron Age or the Kali Yuga or the final stage of of, of the four cycles of the 26,000 year. Wow. Interestingly, that's exactly the story of Lord of the Rings.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Lord of the Rings is about Sauron, who is a black magician who is trying to control the end of the world okay and he's controlling it through these rings but the rings have been lost and he needs to get the rings back in order to control the end of the age he wants to destroy the coming age which is the age of men and and and, be, and make it the age of sauron but But he is defeated, and he's not defeated by gigantic, fierce armies. He's not defeated by uh, uh, someone who's stronger than him. He's defeated, of course, by two hobbits, who you know are brave and are doing it completely selflessly. And and the movie is about. I mean, the books. Tolkien is, you know, unabashedly says this is the end of the third age mm-hmm. and the beginning of the fourth age. And at the end of the books, at the end of the movie, the wizards are leaving, Gandalf, who is an alchemist by the way, right. is leaving, the elves are leaving, all of the ethereal creatures that could occupy the landscape of the third age of history. Can no longer occupy the landscape. Only men can occupy the landscape, and so Aragorn is the king of men, and he has elfin blood, and uh, linguistically, elf goes back to L, mm-hmm. or el or el, which is, you know, the word for the angels mm-hmm. who came, and 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 Tolkien is telling us this incredible true history of the end of the last age and the beginning of the fourth and final age. And all of this happened 6,500 years ago, just exactly the time that he pinpoints these events happening. And furthermore, he intimates in many letters that he wrote to people that he wrote this because we are near the end of this age, and that the age of men is coming to an end. And how did he know this? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I really, I just don't know. He was an incredible man. Um, a side story: he had lost all of his friends in a World War One, and he was in the south of France recovering from a head wound. Um, and, and he walked out one day on a nice sunny day. He was 19 years old and he walked out and he sat underneath an oak tree and he fell asleep this is his story he fell asleep and he dreamed the entire dream of lord of the rings right on the spot the entire three book set he dreamed in one day underneath an oak tree and you know i don't know what to make of that you know was the head wound activating you know something in the pineal gland which was causing him to receive you know, information from across time or something. I don't know, but I tell you what, it is weird and uncanny the way that he structures those books. They're one alchemical revelation after another um, uh, about Atlantis, um, and, and Peter Jackson did a great job yeah. of capturing this. The the mountains that are sculpted to look like men and women, and the and the and the, and the um, you know, the, the the ancient civilization that's lying in ruins around everyone throughout the films. You know, this is this is what Tolkien is talking about, you know. He's talking about some great golden age and how it's deteriorated down. And and, and Gandalf is an alchemist. He's wearing a Phygean hat, which is the hat that the alchemist wore. Um, he's riding a white horse. Alchemists rode white horses. Gandalf is manipulating people all through the books and movies. Mm-hmm. But he's not manipulating them in a bad way. He's manipulating them in a good way. And this is the essence of the Hermetic Doctrines, that you're to have an influence on people, a secret influence to evolve humanity, to help humanity, not to manipulate them in evil ways. Mm-hmm. And Sauron is a fallen alchemist, as is um Saruman, played by Christopher Lee, right. they're fallen alchemists, and they've fallen to the dark side. And Gandalf is transmuted from Gandalf the Grey to, to Gandalf the white. the white. He's turned into a light being. Okay, and he does this by falling into the pit. Okay, falling into the abyss, falling, you know, down. He is transmuted into a being that can now activate the powers that will end this age and begin the next age. Mm -hmm. And when when Tolkien finished writing those books, he told his wife that there was probably 300 people on Earth that would be interested in reading the entire series. (laughs) And this publisher only printed 1,000 books up because no one thought that anyone would be very interested in it. This is in 1954, you know. By 1964, they had already sold 30 million. Now, it's considered the greatest work of literature of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's hitting some core inside us, saying to us, this is our history, this is who we were, this is where we came from, mm-hmm. and this is also where we're going. Because just as the age of men was ending or beginning at the at the end of those books, and the age of elves and wizards and 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 and, and um, dwarves was ending, and hobbits too, so too now our age is ending. What's really weird about this whole thing is that after that essay came out and it got a lot of hits on the web, about 10 million hits. I had so many emails I couldn't keep up with it. Um, they discovered hobbits. <laughs> they discovered. That's right, down in that island down in yeah. Fiji or whatever. They discovered that they had little hobbit houses and, and that they were fully grown human beings that were only three and a half feet tall and that they had hairy feet. And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. You know? I know, it is And it is so, it is, yeah. you know, again, Tolkien is constantly be, pr- being proven right. And I suggest. To everyone that he knew that there were hobbits by looking at the language that there were little signals within the philology that said, "Oh, there was once a race of little people that were smart and industrious and right. and, and and agriculturally you know
0: right, related right. and things that's a, you know that that's another beautiful connection to things that grow, you know yes. Oh yeah, and uh, you know, in and, and Jackson, even though he sneaks it in here, or there if he has them looking for mushrooms, they, yes. you know, and they and they and, and they're smoking their good pipe yes. weed, you know, and
4: yes, and you know, Tolkien just hated our age. He watched as the forests of Manchester were destroyed all around him, and the factories coming in, and he watched his beautiful rural landscape completely destroyed. He got back from World War One, and he was devastated. His whole entire neighborhoods were you know, had been raised and factories have been put in and, and so, you know, all of this had this incredible influence on him. And so, yeah, I mean, the the uprooting of trees and, and Saruman telling them to deforest, you know, the world, right, to build their factories of death. You know, these are these are incredibly powerful archetypal motifs that you know, Tolkien developed in the book. And um they're really allegories about our age, you know, and about what we're doing to the earth and each other, and about how to get, the way to get out of this dilemma is through selfless determination, just like Frodo and Sam, to go forward, to even though there's no reward by going forward. Frodo has nothing to be gained by trying to get rid of the ring. Right okay but he does it anyway and you notice that the ring gets heavier and heavier hmm. that's the densification of time as 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 he moves closer towards the volcano time densifies weight densifies gravity increases this is what happens as we approach the end of time amazing yeah it is
0: amazing wow all right jay look um questions on the web when will the new dvd come out when is it going to be released officially do you have a date yet
4: uh, around Christmas, we want to show it and make sure it gets shown around, and uh, it's going to be at a theater or a venue close by you. There's just too many people taking it now to miss any other areas. All right. Uh Go to tw- the t- 2012 The Odyssey. We'll have a list of every place that's showing it, and um, if we get picked up by a major studio, that'll be on there, too.
0: All right. Well, uh here we go. Like, like I told John, you know, we didn't mention John Jenkins too much uh, in the program, yes. but, but he, but he's been on the program, my best uh, uh, you know, quite a bit in the last couple of months. He was just on last week, and oh, and we talked a lot about this stuff. And I know, uh, I know how much you appreciate his work. He's done amazing stuff, and he's he's an absolute gentleman and a scholar, an absolute brilliant, brilliant One guy. One of my
4: very, very favorite people.
0: Well, man, he's uh, like you say that all of these things are coming together. The convergence of people and ideas from all of these different places is just remarkable, and you know it's it's a privilege to be watching it happen and being a part of it. So, well,
4: it's a privilege to be part of what you're doing too, Mike.
0: Well, okay, I um I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, and I'm I'm, I'm blown away as always after I talk to you. It's, it's it's two hours goes by in five minutes, you know. Yep. So, okay, well, uh. We'll, uh, we'll just uh, call it an evening for now, and we'll do it again soon, and I'll be in touch uh, as I know you will, okay?
4: Looking forward to it. All right,
0: take care. Uh, Jay, tell Sharon, again, thanks so much, and uh, everybody's really going to appreciate this work you guys have done. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, there you have it. Jay Widener on the web, www.jaywidener.com. You can always link there from my site at www.mikehagan, dot com, and um, we'll talk to Jay Soon, I'm sure. All right, everybody, it's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, just about two bells in the morning. And we'll finish things off here with a song called Seven Lost Cities. Wonderful music again tonight from the Wimshurst Machine. We'll hear more from them in the future. And next week, uh, don't forget to come on back. We'll talk to Richard K. Moore, the author of Escaping the Matrix. We'll do a little bit of a special on the 911. Take care, everybody. It's Mike. You can listen to Radio Orbit. We'll talk to you next week.